This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Coming up in the second half of today's show, a new program, a fire science program at Dickinson State University. It's a collaboration with the Dickinson Fire Department. But first, Dr. Thomas Crummel is an assistant professor in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at North Dakota State University. He writes that working conditions in meatpacking plants contributed to the spread of the COVID-19 virus and that impacted the community. Also, he explores whether PPP loans had a positive impact on the craft brewing industry. Dr. Crummel, welcome to Main Street. Thank you so much for having me. You have written a lot about COVID-19 and its impact in the meat packing, packing industry. First, why the necessity for research there? I was previously a research agricultural economist with the USDA and the Economic Research Service. I started uh, my position with them two weeks before the pandemic started. And much of my dissertation was on the community development implications of the meatpacking industry. So early on in the pandemic, when uh, we were noticing that there was potential concerns with the meatpacking employment specifically, I was one of uh, three individuals who was tracking the course of the pandemic in this specific industry, along with the, the FERN and Investigate Midwest. And ultimately, the initial impetus of the, the research was just documenting what was going on in the industry. And then ultimately, once it was pretty well documented across our three sources that this was a significant issue, uh, trying to tease out the underlying, underlying causes of why meatpacking specifically was observing such issues with the pandemic when other industries that you might expect to also have these same type of challenges were not, uh, became a, a vital task for researchers because ultimately uh, when and if we have another pandemic in the future, being able to uh, know where areas we should be working to address up front is going to ultimately reduce the possible spread in, in future pandemics. So I, I think a, a main um, reason for kind of expanding upon the initial research that I was conducting for the USDA was for future planning purposes to ensure that this type of outbreak in a single specific industry doesn't occur in the future. What did you find relative to working conditions and how COVID then was then spread amongst meatpackers? Yeah, so uh, this was joint research that I did with a graduate student of mine uh, where we were analyzing working condition data for uh, the meatpacking industry. And we, we determined that the best comparison group that we could develop was other manufacturing industries that also likely were not shut down during this time. So the way that we developed this was communities that disproportionately depended on meatpacking compared to communities that disproportionately depended upon other manufacturing. Those were the two sets of uh, industries that we were comparing. And we found that meatpacking was significantly different in terms of a, a handful of working condition variables. But the the variable that was most statistically meaningfully different from meatpacking to other manufacturing was the physical proximity of the workers. And ultimately, the estimates that we generated uh, suggested that the average meatpacking worker prior to the pandemic was less than an arm's length away from their colleagues, uh, with production workers probably even closer than that. So the, the fact that meatpacking had their, their workers significantly closer to each other than other manufacturing industries was what Corey and I identified as the likely mechanism why meatpacking was observing these outbreaks and other related manufacturing industries were not. It's a physical job. It's a physical job. Workers are exhaling perhaps at a, at a higher rate than maybe you and I visiting in this interview. Correct. So uh, that's another thing that we didn't necessarily have data on, uh, but the line speed also likely played a, an important factor in 
the overall spread. So I'm super close to the person who's next to me. And ultimately, if the line is going extremely fast, I am breathing heavier. And that also likely had a, an impact. So not in our paper, but a, another paper that we heavily cite uh, evaluated the line speed in their research. And they found that that was a significant determinant on the, the spread. So I think the interaction between how close the workers were and the fact that they are engaged in physical activity, which necessarily is going to result in more droplets being exerted, probably was a large factor in why we observed meatpacking being disproportionate to other manufacturing industries. My memory of this was that meatpacking and meat packers were impacted very early on. Are we talking April of 2020 or so? The earliest outbreaks, which would have been like Worthington, Minnesota plant and the Sioux Falls plant, um, those were mid-ish April, I would say. And then ultimately through April and the beginning of May is when you saw the majority of the outbreaks occurring within the industry. And at that point, the outbreaks became national news and the meatpacking industry um, started to implement mitigation procedures within the plants. So uh, another reason, going back to your initial question on, on why Corey and I were so interested in identifying the working conditions as a main driver of the COVID-19 spread was because in February and March of 2020, a lot of the research that was coming out, uh, I know New York Times ran uh, a piece where they were trying to predict the possible occupations that were most likely to have issues with COVID-19 moving forward. And most of the research, both in terms of the media and academic research, uh, was identifying three major variables as the main contributing factors. So uh, the physical proximity of the workers, which is what Corey and I isolated in meatpacking, the uh, uh, contact with others, which is a, a tricky variable to interpret because contact with others also includes things like responding to email and uh, being able to engage in Zoom conversations. So my job as an economist at that time and an economist and a college professor right now would have an extraordinarily high contact with others, but we were able to move remotely because of the nature of our work. We could telecommute. Exactly correct. So that variable became somewhat problematic, and the other variable that was often used was contact with diseases, which would make sense for like someone who's in the medical field. Uh, but meatpacking, because of the, the de-skilling of the occupation that went through in the 1970s and 1980s, while it has a high physical proximity of the workers, it's relatively low on contact with others and exposure to diseases. So when people were trying to forecast which occupations would be most affected, no one identified meatpacking until after the meatpacking industry started to have the outbreaks. So another reason why Corey and I thought it was so important to look into this is because we, we as, as a, a collective group of people, got it wrong that meatpacking wasn't going to be a concern. And then it was really the only industry that we saw widespread outbreaks occurring. So trying to figure out why we got it wrong, I think, was also a super important reason why we ultimately engaged in this topic of research. I want to come back to spread in the community from the meat workers themselves. But first, you learned a lot about mitigations, and in fact, they worked. A lot of us started to see these plexiglass shields in between the cashier and myself. We didn't like them. We wondered if they did any good or other mitigation factors that other industries tried to do that, that we noticed. But in the meatpacking plants, what did you discover? 
Yeah. So, um, and I'm I'm currently engaged in follow up research with a colleague of mine in psychology, Dr. Kat Dugan, um, at NDSU, where we're actually in Otter Tail, Minnesota, collecting uh, data from meatpacking workers currently. Uh, but the suggestive evidence in in my previously published paper was that by implementing the plexiglass dividers between workers and probably more so physically separating the workers more so and requiring PPE to be worn by the workers. We can't identify which of those potential mitigation procedures alone or in combination had uh, a positive impact. But ultimately, in the analysis that Corey and I did, we did a comparison in the the spread of the disease in the community, which we'll we'll get back to momentarily. And we found that uh, ultimately, at the peak of the outbreaks, the meatpacking dependent communities were uh, magnitudes higher than the other manufacturing dependent communities. And after the mitigation procedures were implemented, the, there was a significant decrease in leveling off where for the remainder of 2020, after you get to about July, the meatpacking communities had identical spread to the other manufacturing communities. So like I said, we can't identify which specific mitigation procedure was likely the one that reduced the spread that occurred, but in tandem, the mitigation procedure that the industry was implementing appeared to work based on the analysis that we we performed. And like I, I suggested, I'm currently in the field talking to meatpacking workers as we speak, uh, trying to figure out if we can determine which mitigation procedures were implemented at what level and maybe get a better sense of which ones worked more so than the other ones. But as a whole, it appears as though that the meatpacking industry in general while they created a situation where the, the virus was able to spread, once they realized what was occurring as, as a collective, it appears as though they, they improved the working conditions in such a way that the, the outbreaks that we observed in the spring of 2020 didn't continue at the industry level. We're visiting with Dr. Thomas Crummel, assistant professor in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at NDSU. He writes about the working conditions in meatpacking plants and how it contributed to the spread of the COVID-19 virus. In looking at your statistics, one wonders that it wasn't seemingly a big deal in within the meatpacking workers relative to their mortality rates, but what happened in the community was the big, I guess, outcome of your research that was really somewhat stunning. Yeah, so, and and this is results that have been also uh, produced in uh, other research published in, in um, other journals, PNAS, Food Policy, uh, where all three of the papers that I'm familiar with that have analyzed the community impacts of the COVID-19 virus from the meatpacking industry have all found significant community-level spread. Dr. Carmel, can, can you tell us more specifically what that means? What does it mean, community spread? We've all heard that term. Yeah, so that means that I, as a meatpacking worker, go into my plant and I catch the virus from a coworker. And then I go back to my residence, which a lot of the meatpacking workers, especially in the, the rural meatpacking plants, are uh, individuals who are immigrants from different countries and potentially disproportionately live in multi-generational households. So not only do I get sick, but then I also spread the virus to everyone that I'm living with. And there's the possibility that if my family members or other household members are also going to the community, then they're also spreading the virus to the people that they come in contact with. So the direct effect of uh, COVID-19 in the meatpacking industry is that the meatpacking worker gets sick, but the indirect effect is that 
not only does the meatpacking worker get sick, but everyone they come in contact with also does, and the people they come in contact with also Exponentially do. almost yep. grows. Yep. People were getting sick in the community, and you learned a lot about rural health care infrastructure here in the region. What have you learned? Yeah, so this is preliminary research that I'm engaged with, with a current graduate student, Edmund Odokar. Um, and uh, what we are doing is we're extending a another paper that I published last year where uh, my colleagues and I um, found evidence that there was a structural difference in employment that existed prior to the pandemic that helps to explain why uh, different individuals in different racial and ethnic categories had different mortality rates with our results suggesting that uh, African-American and Hispanic frontline workers died at a higher rate than Caucasian frontline workers, in part because they worked those jobs at a higher rate. Um, so what Edmund and I are currently doing is we're analyzing death certificate data in Minnesota and South Dakota, and we're finding evidence that uh, while not a terribly large number of meatpacking workers died, more than should have, but uh, compared to the number of cases that we're observing, it's a relatively small number of meatpacking workers actually died from COVID-19 in large part because the meatpacking workers who got the virus are largely younger and healthier on average. Uh, but the uh, ultimate effect that we're, we're picking up is that even though COVID-19 doesn't seem to be a major explainer of excess mortality, we're finding significant evidence of excess mortality, specifically in rural communities in Minnesota and South Dakota that house the large meatpacking plant. And the effect that we're currently attempting to tease out is that the rural communities just did not have sufficient health infrastructure to be able to hospitalize hundreds of meatpacking workers at the same time and to continue to provide the same treatment to the people who needed to go to the hospital. So the story that we're, we're telling in this preliminary analysis is that the excess mortality that we're estimating is attributable to the fact that the rural hospitals just could not triage the care in such a way that would allow for people who needed to be in the hospital for reasons other than COVID-19 to get the care that they, they necessarily needed. And that's ultimately why we believe we're finding evidence of significant excess mortality, especially during the time period when the outbreaks were occurring. Should be said, even though perhaps meatpackers didn't die at a very high rate, they still were sick. Absolutely. And needed care. And they needed assistance from these rural health care systems that just became overwhelmed. Absolutely. So the, the research that Corey and I and then the two other studies, uh, the one that published in PNAS, I think, found that 6 to 8% of all COVID-19 cases up through July of 2020 were attributable to the meatpacking industry, wow. largely as a result of meatpacking workers catching the virus. So meatpacking workers definitely got sick from the virus. And at this point in the pandemic, uh, if you got sick, a lot of the times you ended up in the hospital. And if there are a limited number of hospital beds in the hospital, then if they're being taken up by meatpacking workers, if I am... Uh, someone who needs to come in for my cancer treatment, and I know that the the hospital is inundated with people who are sick with an extraordinarily contagious disease, I might elect to not go in and get my treatment given my comorbidity status. And ultimately, it could have been the case that that individual needlessly passed away as a result of the rural hospitals being unable to service them at that point. Sure. Dr. Cumberland, you spoke earlier about continuing to visit today with meatpacking workers. Is the industry supportive now of your research in the hopes of, you know what, maybe we can mitigate these issues in the future? Are they a willing supporter now of what you're doing? So 
Our our sampling strategy is going into uh, emergency food pantries to recruit our participants. So we're not partnering specifically with the meatpacking plants. We're we're leveraging uh, community resources to help us to identify the potential meatpacking workers. In the industry's defense, we haven't reached out to them to see if they would be supportive of this, and in part because we we don't want to potentially bias the re- responses that we're receiving from the meatpacking workers. So by going through the the social service providers, ultimately we're going to be able to get a a more honest assessment of. Specifically, we're asking questions about working conditions in the plants both today and before the pandemic. And we want to make sure that the participants are comfortable answering the questions honestly. So this this sampling strategy uh, we've determined reduces the likelihood that we would be receiving answers from people that could be biased because they're, they're concerned if they say something bad about their employer, then they might get identified. So so that's the process that we're going through. But in the meatpacking industry's defense, we have not reached out sure. to them to, to help us. What do we know about the, the mental impacts? We all know about the physical impacts, but there must have been also pressure to stay at work. I'm in a not a high-paying job. I need to provide, and there's also pressure for me to stay at work. What have we learned about um, that and what it ultimately contributed, if you will, to community spread? Yeah. So um, given the data, I haven't been able to evaluate this specific question, but there's a lot of conversation over the impact that uh, show up bonuses that were paid during this time had in the overall spread. So in economics, we have this this theory that when a uh, job working conditions in a job get more difficult, the employer necessarily has to pay a higher wage to encourage people to show up. So the the typical example is that the sanitation worker makes a higher wage than you would expect given their education level because it's not a pleasant job. So this is a, a compensating wage differential. And ultimately, as work becomes more difficult, we expect employers to pay a higher wage. So what we observed during the pandemic was that a lot of meatpacking plants were providing their workers a bonus to continue to come to work. Uh, but also uh, an interesting feature of meatpacking workers is that they, as I, I mentioned before, are disproportionately from immigrant communities and tend to be lower socioeconomic status. So the impact of these show-up bonuses was that people showed up to work in times when maybe they shouldn't have. So it actually created the opposite incentive than you would want to encourage. So um, that's something that we're currently assessing in the research that we're collecting data on was did the plant, the plants that we're evaluating provide these incentives to come to work, but also we're, we're more broadly evaluating some mental health aspects that I, I at this point don't have a great sense on because we haven't started analyzing the data, but to be continued. And in speaking of to be continued, we're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Thomas Crummel, Assistant Professor in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at NDSU. After the news break, we'll be visiting about the payroll, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program on small business performance, specifically his research to small craft breweries. That's after the news. Stay with us. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The House Appropriations Committee is now considering a measure that would change the retirement plan for most state employees to a defined contribution plan. Right now, the plan is defined benefit. The measure would implement the defined contribution plan for new hires uh, effective January 1st of 2025. The bill's supporters say the current plan has an unfunded liability of $1.8 billion. House Majority Leader Mike LaFour of Dickinson is the main sponsor. At the end of the day, the defined benefit plan, in my mind, is a train wreck that's going to cost us more and more dollars versus let's take the liability that we have, let's embrace it, let's pay the unfunded liability, let's move to a highly competitive defined contribution plan 
that is highly competitive. In fact, I've had people say it's too rich. LaFour told the committee younger workers prefer a defined contribution plan because of its portability. The president of North Dakota United, the union that represents public employees, says the legislature is at fault because it had a chance to address the unfunded liability but kept kicking the can down the road. Nick Archuleta says a Senate bill would keep the defined benefit plan. It has been introduced by Bismarck Republican Senators Sean Cleary and Deck Diver uh, and House Majority Leader Josh Boucher. Demonstrate our... It'll be a lot cheaper for the state of North Dakota and a lot more surety and peace of mind for uh, public employees as well as the agencies that hire them. The Appropriations Committee did not take immediate action. The bill is House Bill 1040. The Senate bill is Senate Bill 2239. The Minnesota House has passed a pair of bills designed to shore up subsidized child care. They supply what DFL supporters call emergency funding to daycare programs for low-income families and enable thousands more children to qualify for early learning scholarships and boost provider reimbursement rates. DFL Representative Dave Pinto of St. Paul says it's just a start. Demonstrate uh, our commitment um, as a caucus and really as, um, as a government to say that we need to stabilize the sector in the short run and to make investments um, that really get kids off to that great start that they deserve in the long run. Republicans want greater oversight of the money to prevent abuse. And a quick overnight blizzard will impact the southern Red River Valley tonight into tomorrow. Jacob Spender is a forecaster with the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. He says a blizzard warning will be in effect in the southern Red River Valley into west-central Minnesota from 6 p.m. E- this evening until noon tomorrow. The northern valley will be in a winter weather advisory and the Devil's Lake Basin will be in a wind advisory during the same time frame. Spender says gusty winds of up to 50 to 60 miles per hour will be possible with the system and some snow accumulation should also occur. Basically, we're looking at about one to five inches in a short little band stretching from southeastern North Dakota all the way up into the Baudet area. Now, lower amounts as you head toward the northwest up into Devil's Lake, which they could see almost nothing but up to an inch potentially. And then you also get those higher totals getting down into Elbow Lake, Wadena, and the Park Rapids area. Spender says a wintry mix of freezing rain turning to snow will also dictate where the higher snow totals will end up. He says the strongest winds will begin later this evening around 8 or 9 p.m. and may impact Wednesday morning's commute. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Thomas Kremel, an assistant professor in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at North Dakota State University. Dr. Kremel, you've also done significant research on the impact of the payroll protection program and how it specifically impacted the craft brewing industry. What have you discovered? Yeah, so this is uh, collaborative research with uh, a different graduate student, uh, Aaron Staples, who's going to be starting at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and I'm very proud of him. Um, So this is uh, research that him and I Uh, developed about a year and a half ago, uh, where we partnered with the Craft Brewers Association um, with the intent of trying to understand how PPP ideally positively impacted the craft beer uh, producers. Brief explanation of what PPP was. Yeah, so so PPP was the... uh, Largely, um, uh, loans that did not need to be repaid under certain conditions. Uh, So an unconditional transfer to uh, small businesses uh, in order to retain employees on the payroll. There were other things that the PPP supported um, in addition to workers, but that was the, the main mm-hmm. impetus of, of the, the PPP being enacted into law is that we know that there are certain occupations that are going to be disproportionately impacted by not being able to uh, have customers come in. And we want to provide some uh, uh, rope to these firms to be able to continue to pay their their employees. So we specifically evaluate the craft beer industry, and this was done for a number of reasons. One, Aaron and I are just interested in craft beer. So it, it's a, 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 a great hook, a great way to kind of evaluate something that we both very much enjoy. Um, but also uh, craft beer 
has a number of features that makes it more generalizable to small businesses, broadly speaking. So uh, you can think of the craft beer producers that we have in the, the area, the junkyards and the, the Fargo Brewing. Um, and ultimately, a lot of the beer sales that those individual firms are making are based on people actually coming into the tap rooms and drinking the beer with their friends. And if you are limiting the number of people who are able to be in a venue indoors together at a time, we would be concerned that those producers would be disproportionately negatively affected. Um, also, similar producers would be uh, restaurants that also are depending upon uh, in-person sales of their food. So while a craft brewer isn't necessarily a brew pub um, or a restaurant, the impacts that we observed in the craft beer industry could be generalized beyond that to more of food service more generally. Also, the craft beer industry has uh, very interesting market segmentations where you have larger regional brewers um, who rely less heavily on in-person sales and you have the smaller local producers who are relying almost entirely on people coming in and drinking beer. So we can also examine that to kind of see how uh, larger alcohol producers potentially were impacted during the pandemic. Bottom line, we just have about 30 seconds left. These programs worked. Uh, that's the what our research suggests. So we, we find evidence that the brewers that received PPP payments uh, closed at a significantly lower rate. And we also found that while all brewers in our sample on average uh, had a reduction in their production, we found that the brewers that received PPP payments had a smaller reduction than those that didn't. Dr. Thomas Kremel from North Dakota State University, thank you for the interesting conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here today. Up next, Dickinson State University, in cooperation with the Dickinson Fire Department, has launched a fire science program. That's next on Main Street. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Basin Electric Power Cooperative, headquartered in Bismarck, a Touchstone Energy Cooperative. Touchstone Energy Cooperatives comprise a nationwide network of over 730 consumer-owned electric cooperative utilities dedicated to community, integrity, accountability, and innovation. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Dickinson State University has announced the addition of an associate in applied science fire science to its degree offerings. Applications are ongoing now and the program will begin later this year. The program's development began in 2020 when the university was approached by the Dickinson Fire Department, which hoped to build a local program and attract local individuals into the field serving a critical role in the community. Here with me to discuss is Dickinson State University's Dean of the College of Education, Business, and Applied Science, Dr. Holly Grukey. Dr. Grukey, welcome to uh, Main Street. Thanks. And also with us is Elena Decker, a senior firefighter with the Dickinson Fire Department. Elena, welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Let's start with you, Elena. Take us back, if you will, to 2020. What was the need for this, this program? So we kind of just saw a need for this program in the area because there's nothing really offered on this side of the state. Um, there is some offering on the eastern side of the state through East Grand Forks and then through Moorhead. So it was just an opportunity to bring a program that we thought could really benefit this area with some education and some training that is much needed in the fire service. And then how did the process work? You thought of this idea, you needed a partner. At some point you reached out to Dickinson State University? Yeah, we, we just saw an opportunity to go through the college and they were very on board with bringing us and helping us in any way that they could. And Dr. Grukey, from your perspective, what is the focus of this program? What is it that the university wants to accomplish? Well, one of the things that we have found is if we can't train some of um, folks in this area, we lose them to the east side of the state uh, for training, we don't typically get them to come back because there's 
there's needs there too. So we wanted to be able to train our local folks uh, and keep them here so they can serve in these critical uh, needed areas. So this is a Associated in Applied Science Fire Science Program. Does this focus on wildfire training, all aspects of fire, uh, fire department training, if you will? What's the general focus of the program? I would say that this general focus is going to be on structural firefighting. There is some wildland firefighting training in the initial Fire One certification, but overall this this program is going to focus on structural firefighting. So what is the fire department's role now in working with the university going forward? We'll be taking on the majority of the process. We'll be doing all the certification training that um, involves in-person lecture and hands-on training. And then we'll be doing the online courses and then the externship. We'll be allowing them to come and work with us and intern with us and get some hands-on and real-life experience. Who are you hoping then to recruit to the program? Is this eligible for high school students, just college students only, or even post-college students? Currently, we have a high school fire program going on. So we're, we have a dual credit with them. So we're hoping to bring them on board after they finish their uh, program through the high school, we're hoping to they continue their education. And then this is open to anybody who is in the fire service or even just looking to get into the fire service. So it's a very streamlined program. Anyone who has experience can bring in their certifications and start the program off on a good start. Give us a feel, um, Dr. Grucke, if you will, for the career opportunities we are talking about here. Well, I think the big thing with um, the education side coupled with the certifications that they're getting is that individuals will be able to elevate themselves within fire services. You can become certified, um, become a firefighter with those certifications. Um, but if you're looking at having a long-term career, having some education very much benefits you. How long does this program last? The program takes about two years to complete. And Elena, you talked about some online, some in person. Is it a requirement that somebody be in Dickinson for that two years? Or what is the breakdown then of having to come to Dickinson? So we're hoping that people will come to Dickinson to earn the certifications. But if they earn the certifications in another area, they are allowed to transfer those in and then continue the course through an online program. Um, so those certifications would have to be pro-boarded, which sets the standard for that certification that says that that person was trained to the same level as anyone else who would have that certification. So that's one of the only requirements with accepting those certifications is that we are mm -hmm. looking for a pro-board stamp on it. So tell me what the prerequisites for this program might be. And I'm talking both from an educational perspective and also from, a, I assume there are physical requirements that must be met. There is really no prerequisites for the program. I mean, we want people to come in ready to go and having a good attitude. You do have to be somewhat physically fit to do this. This is a strenuous job. We do offer some opportunities. There are people in our department that can help people train physically to go through the program. So we have some high school students right now that are actually training with firefighters on the department in the gym and getting physically fit. And we've seen some benefits from that um, training that these high school students have definitely seen a change in their health. So to go back to your question, there really is no prerequisites other than coming in and being ready to go and complete the training. Goes without saying men or women. Yep, yep. men or women, we'll <clears throat> take anyone. College age or even older. Yep. Tell me, let's, you talked briefly about certifications. Take me into more detail about what those certifications actually mean and exactly what they are. So Fire 1 and Fire 2, the way it's always been explained to me, Fire 1 takes you to the door, Fire 2 gets you through the door when it comes to structural firefighting. So Fire 1 is going to be a lot of your basic firefighting. I'm going to show you how to use the tools. I'm going to show you how to use hand lines, flow water. I'm going to teach you about fire. Fire 2, I'm going to go a little bit more in depth in some of the processes of being a firefighter, like in the career. So those are two certifications we'll have them get. 
We do a hazmat operations course. So any hazardous material that you may deal with in the field teaches you how to deal with that. And then we do an auto extrication course. So uh, vehicle extrication um, on emergency scenes. So those are some sort of main, the main certifications that we are going to offer. It seems to me that of, of what you just talked about would require hands-on training. I can't, I'm sure that's a big part of this program. Give me an idea physically about what would be expected of someone who takes part in the training that you just described for those certifications. We definitely want people to get their hands-on stuff and experience. So they'll be working with hand tools. They'll be working with saws. They'll be working with hose lines, ladders, extrication tools. All that stuff can be um, physically exerting. So it is, it is a fairly strenuous course, like I said, but I think people that come in with the right attitude and the right mindset, they're able to accomplish it. We have ways to help people adapt um, to do certain skills in different ways so that even like people who might feel like they aren't phys- physically capable of doing it, we have ways to make minor adjustments so that they are able to complete skills. Dr. Grukey, from the university's perspective, how, how many students are you anticipating or hoping for? Well, I, we are prepared to uh, invest in this program and grow it to the needs of the area. So uh, off the bat, I would hope that our first cohort for the fall would be about 25 students, because I think that's probably where we are at in terms of capacity. But, um, you know, each year, if we could grow that to 25 to 50 students, um, that would be ideal from um, the institution standpoint. And what about the fiscal side of this program? Are there costs to the university? Is there state and or federal support being given to the university to uplift this program? We currently have not received any um, state or federal support for this program. We have allocated some of our state-funded appropriated budget for the program just to pay for instructional costs. But a lot of this is coming through support for the city of Dickinson, the Dickinson Fire Department. Um, The Dickinson Fire Department has also received support from the Rough Rider Area uh, Career and Technical Center to offer the dual credit coursework. So um, that's allowed them to purchase materials and pay for some of the instruction of that. And so it's really been uh, collaborating within the community right now. Um, down the line, do I think we could potentially gain support from you know federal support or additional state support? I could see us doing that as the program grows and moves forward. Relative to need, have there been, I guess, I'll reduce the question down to more calls for service for the Dickinson Fire Department lately? Yeah, we, we've had an increased number of calls. So I, I think there's always a need for more people and more boots on the ground working um, especially even just around the state, we have rural communities that definitely would benefit from experience and education and people willing to do this job. I'm guessing that there are um, professional firefighters in North Dakota and volunteer firefighters as well. This training would be beneficial to each? Yeah, it would be beneficial to um, full-time, part-time, volunteer um, yeah, I think, I think having the knowledge keeps you safe and it, it keeps you doing the job correctly and providing to the community that you're serving. We're visiting with Dickinson State University's Dean of the College of Education and Business and Applied Science, Dr. Holly Grukey, and also Elena Decker, the senior firefighter with the Dickinson Fire Department on the new Associate in Applied Science Fire Science Program being offered by Dickinson State University. How has training changed and evolved over the last few years, over the last few decades? Fire science has evolved, just evolves constantly. We're finding new ways to fight fire, new technology. I mean, there's always new stuff coming out, new research being applied. Um, This is an ever-changing career, so getting that education in, I think, is really beneficial. Do you anticipate that this really does open career doors for people who go through this program? Will it be still difficult for a graduate to find a job in the field, or do you anticipate that no, our placement rate is going to be X or so percent? Have you thought about those numbers? We have. I think I think the people that are going to go through this program are going to be very marketable. 
moving either whether they want to stay here i mean we we will definitely see those people as very qualified candidates because we're teaching them and we're knowing the education that they're getting but when they're moving they're moving outside of this area i think they're going to be very marketable and hireable to any outside agency because they're going to see the dedication they've put into it and we're also looking at a trend in the fire service where to move up in your career they're wanting these firefighters to have college educations, whether it be associates or bachelor's degrees. So I think encouraging current firefighters to come and get this education is something that I think will really benefit the area. We're, we're encouraging others to go sure. forward in their career. Sure. We see um, on the news now, it's almost a year round news segment where we see wildfires are a big problem in the West in particular, and even though it's not the primary focus of this program, is that one of the driving components here? And what are the stats, if you have any to share about wildfires in North Dakota? No, I unfortunately don't have any stats that I could give you on wildfires. Being a city firefighter, I'm fortunate to not have to deal with a lot of wildland fires. We do have mutual aid with the rural if they ever needed us, that we will go and assist them. Um, and there are opportunities, I think, through the program, if students stay with us, that we could offer them the ability to be certified in um, wildland firefighting if they so choose. What is, give us a detail about the application process. I'm listening. I maybe have read about the program. You know what? I want to apply. Step by step, what's going to happen? Sure. So uh, the first thing is, I hope they would reach out to the Dickinson State University Admissions Department and express interest. For individuals who are interested in this program, uh, we are willing to waive their application fee because we really want to support them in uh, moving through the process. So step one, let us know that they're interested and we'll start working with them. Um, they can fill out an application, um, then attach any uh, high school um, transcripts, um, their, that documents that they have a diploma or GED or some equivalent to that. Um, and then uh, if they have um, certifications that they've already received through their um, fire service, I would just say I would recommend gathering that up because if you're wanting to have credit towards that, we go through a prior learning assessment um, with them after they're accepted. Um, the application process is really short. I think it, they get through it in about five days. Um, usually takes us about seven full days for processing and they could be in the program. Elena, is Dickinson a professional fire department or is it a volunteer fire department? We're a combination department, so right now we have full-time staffing, and then we are supplemented by part-time staffing. Elena, I've read where nationally, according to the U.S. Department Bureau of Labor Statistics, the median pay for firefighters is about $50,000 a year, give or take. Is that about what it is in North Dakota for professional firefighters? Do you have a feel for that? Yeah, I would say that's a pretty standard rate of pay. And I also understand that's projected to grow maybe about 4% a year, at least until 2031 are the statistics I've seen. Might you agree with that too? I would agree with that. Appreciate your, your visiting with us. Again, we're visiting with Dickinson State University's Dean of College of Education, Business, and Applied Science, Dr. Holly Grukey, and also Elena Decker, the senior firefighter with the Dickinson Fire Department. Thanks to you both for joining us on Main Street. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Dakota Datebook is next. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. Hey, lifelong learner, Humanities North Dakota is offering six 12-week online classes taught by nationally recognized scholars. Class topics include Norse mythology, indigenous history, understanding the Constitution, Russian literature, and more. Registration and more information about North Dakota's lifelong learning community can be found at humanitiesnd.org. This is Dakota Date Book for February 14th. For many, Valentine's Day is a time for love and gratitude for the people in our lives. 
and it's been celebrated since the early 1700s. Around this time in 1910, you could attend a Valentine's Day social in Bismarck or buy a card that professed your love and devotion from Finney's Drugstore. There are some, however, who are not exactly on theme with the spirit of the holiday. On this date in 1913, Brakeman T.R. O'Neill was the victim of an unprovoked attack at the local diner in Minot. The railroad employee was enjoying a meal at the cozy lunchroom when a man approached him wielding a loaded revolver. The man was later found to go by the name of George Strong, and he was from Great Falls, Montana. Upon reaching the hapless victim, Strong whirled O'Neill around in his chair and struck the railroad employee on the head with the butt of his revolver. O'Neill sustained a deep gash from the blow just above his eyebrow. As O'Neill fell back against the counter, Strong aimed his revolver at him and threatened to fill him full of holes. Fortunately for O'Neill, the safety on the attacker's gun was still engaged. Strong's futile attempts to pull the trigger gave the victim enough time to regain his senses and fight back. O'Neill tackled Strong to the ground and pinned his left arm, then attempted to secure the gun. While the other patrons dining at the lunchroom took the weapon from the attacker and summoned an officer, Strong threatened to shoot anyone who interfered. Strong was put on trial on March 5th, and the jury found him guilty of assault with a dangerous weapon. However, they did not find that Strong had the intention to kill. So what's intriguing about this case is that the newspaper or court records never indicate Strong's reason for the attack. Study of court records reveal a suspicion of intoxication on Strong's part, which would explain his recklessness. Another interesting detail is that some court documents find the weapon to be a knife rather than a gun. The cause for these discrepancies and their implications is all left to speculation. Today's Decoded Eight book was written by Olivia Burmeister. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. When you think about the job requirements for elected office, what are some traits that come to mind? Honesty? Persistence? Well, how about a complete and utter lack of shame? If you are completely shameless, you can get away with quite a bit in our world searching for political lessons in the post-Trump era on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Remember, you can hear all episodes of Main Street on our website at prairiepublic.org. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of Main Street. Until then, thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>